0: We seek to recognize your presence with us. God, we often pray for your presence, but in reality, we know that you're there um, always. And we pray that we'll feel it, um, even when it's hard, even when other things are much more palpable in our lives. God, we pray that we'll feel it. Especially, Lord, I pray that right now, we will feel you. We will know that you're here, you're speaking to us, I pray that... The words that we've just sang in worship to you and that we've just prayed to you in song will continue to prick our hearts as we now think about things that you've revealed to us um, in the Scriptures. God, mold us to be like you. Mold us to be to live the life that Jesus showed us in his. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. Well, we're taking a break from... Sermon on the Mount right now, uh, and I think it's at, a, at an appropriate point, you know, Thad's been leading us, That primarily Thad has been leading us through uh, the Sermon on the Mount. We just finished talking about the, uh, the Lord's Prayer, and, uh, but the important thing, and this is part of what we're going to talk about uh, more extensively as I go, one of the important things as we study uh, these big concepts that are brought up in Scripture is to pause to think about what are we going to do with it. And so that's kind of what I'm, what I'm going to talk about a little bit today is what are we going to do with these big concepts? It's the idea of discipleship. Last time I spoke, back in February, I think. Last time I taught. And for those of you who aren't normally here, I'm about third string. So if this is really good, then you can say, "Wow!" And that was the third string guy. If it was really bad, it's well, it was just the third string guy. So, um, so either way. Uh, Either way, hopefully you'll have something to something to take home with you. But but last time I spoke in February, uh, I talked a little bit about discipleship, and we uh, we looked at a few things about discipleship that I'm going to kind of build on now. Uh, disciple, when we look at, when we find the word disciple in the Bible, we're looking at a couple of different Greek words. Mathetes is the noun form, mathetuo is the verb form, and basically it's a word that indicates um, a training relationship, somebody who is learning from someone, but Being a disciple, discipleship isn't the stuff you get from listening to a podcast, although there's great value in some of that stuff. I listen to a lot of them. Discipleship isn't even what you're doing right now, although there's hopefully value to what we're doing right now. Discipleship is something that you're learning in a relationship with someone else. And uh, the best English word, I think, that kind of captures the concept of what discipleship is, uh, is the word apprentice, uh, because you think of an apprenticeship. You know, somebody that's a, a master plumber has an apprenticeship, uh, apprentice training under him where he's following that plumber through all of the, all of the skills and, and everything that he's going to need to have in order to launch out and do it on his own. But it's not, it's not a plumber standing in front of a classroom telling, okay, here's how you do plumbing. It's somebody following along, learning as an apprentice at the feet of somebody who really knows what they're doing. Okay? That's what discipleship is somebody who is learning a skill in relationship with the trainer. Um, and the skill that we are learning is we're learning to be like Jesus. We're learning to love like Jesus, live like Jesus. Okay. So that's the essence of what it is to be a disciple. Last time I talked, and you can you can get on the website and, and listen to the sermon if you want a refresher on it. But basically, what I what we looked at last time was was the fact that. Christianity has kind of um, developed a unique form of discipleship because originally it was people who were sitting at the feet of Jesus learning from the master, just as an apprentice plumber would learn from a master plumber, right? At, originally that's what it was, but once Jesus physically left this earth, they had to reconceptualize it so that, I, so that I'm still a disciple of Jesus, but I'm learning the ways of Jesus by following somebody, who, somebody else who lives the way of Jesus. Okay, so we're. I, well, I'm not a disciple of Thad because he's the one that's up here teaching me most of the time, right? I'm a disciple of Jesus, and I learn through those teachings. And hopefully I'm learning through people that I have a, day, a daily relationship with or a, or a regular relationship with where we're talking about life, we're talking about um, the things that we're experiencing in life together and how does Jesus and Jesus' life and Jesus' teachings um, impact those things that we're going through. okay. So that's what we talked about before um, in in February when I taught. Today I want to take that a little bit further um, and look look a little bit more about what discipleship is. And I think we might take this into next week as well. But one thing you might not realize, we are called disciples about 250 times in the New Testament, somewhere, somewhere right around there. We're only called Christians about three times, depending on how you count it and which ones you include, right? So being a disciple is at the very core of, of who we are. Our identity as apprentices of Jesus is essential to understanding ourselves correctly if we're trying to, if we're trying to be Christian, if we're trying to follow Jesus. So it, could be, uh, it, could, it, it should go without saying that community church, we exist to make disciples of Jesus. We do a lot of other things as well in conjunction with that. But that's at the very core of who we are. If we're not doing that, we've lost touch with who we are as a church. We've lost touch with what the church, not just this church, but the church universal is all about as well. It's that much at the core of what we're doing. But today, the step, the step that I want to take us into um, further into discipleship is this idea. Discipleship is always a process of teaching transcendent principles through specific behaviors. It's always a process of teaching transcendent principles through specific behaviors. Now, when you talk about those last couple of words, specific behaviors, um, and you start really thinking through that, so it, it, it starts to sit uncomfortably for some people. Because when you start talking about specific behaviors that we're going to talk about in relationship to Jesus, it can start to feel like legalism. Because precision always runs the risk of turning into legalism. Um, it runs that risk. And, and so the result is a lot of Christian leaders, a lot of pastors will get up and teach all about general principles and just trust that the people will take it out and apply it themselves however they see fit. But the problem with that, as I see it, is that when you only teach on general principles and you leave out the application, there, you don't give opportunity for immediate application, then there's often no application at all. Because teachings are meant to be something that you can go out and apply. And at that point, when we don't go out and apply the stuff we're learning, we become very educated, but we don't very a- become very activated to move out, move forward, and, and, and live in a certain way. We might know a lot about the way we're to live, but whether we're out there actually living it or not may be another question. Okay, So when we look at the Bible, we see a book that teaches both transcendent principles and specific applications specific opportunities to live those principles out. All right, let's look at just a couple of examples of, of how the Bible does this. So Leviticus 19 um, says, When you harvest the crops of your land, don't gather the grain all the way to the edges of your fields or pick up what was overlooked during the first round of harvesting. All right, what does that have to do with me? How does that apply to my life? When I'm sitting down and I read my Bible, and I know, as I know you all do, you start in the book of Leviticus because that's the most interesting one. Not, not really. Um, but when you come across a verse like this, how do you understand what it means for you? Well, you think back to how, how it would have meant or what it would have meant to them. When, when that verse was followed at the time that it was given, the poor were always able to walk down the road and as they passed by these fields of, of produce, because the edges of the field, when this verse was followed, the edges of the field would be left Unharvested. So as a poor person walks along the road, they're always able to have something to sustain them because they can draw from the edges of the harvest, right? It was a way of taking care of poor people, all right? Today, most poverty, not all poverty, but most poverty is located in urban centers where there are no fields of produce sitting to be harvested. So even if we followed this, it wouldn't have much effect on poverty, So what do we do? Do we write this off? Is this just something from back then and there that doesn't apply to us? No, we look for a transcendent principle. And I think transcendent principle here would be something along the lines of take care of the poor. Find ways in your context to take care of the poor. All right, 1 Peter chapter 3 starts out with a principle. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment. There's a transcendent principle, and he immediately follows it with specific instructions on what that might look like in their specific context. He says, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. All right? But the principle of focusing on in inner beauty, um, that still stands. A lot of scholars, when they look at the Sermon on the Mount, what we've been, what we've been studying over the past few months... Um, when they look at that, they, they see it as kind of the early church's discipleship curriculum. As they were teaching one another how to follow Jesus, how to be apprentices of Christ, they would start there because that's the best uh, kind of 101 guide to, to following Jesus. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, you see a verse like this where Jesus says, For I tell you this, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness goes deeper than the Pharisees even more righteous than the most learned learner of the law. So for them, when Jesus spoke those words, you understand, that would have been shocking. Because the Pharisees were the most notorious holiness movement of the day, right? They were notorious about being meticulous about the details of living a holy life. So when he says your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees, he's saying it's it's not just about the details that they do so well. It's not just about all these specific meticulous points. It's primarily a heart issue. So you need to go beyond getting the details right and start getting to the heart of the matter. Okay, so he's warning them there against legalism, making the externals, making the meticulous details the whole picture. He warns them against that and and against obsessing over those externals. But then at the same time, after warning them against legalism, he then fills the Sermon on the Mount with a whole lot of specific teachings about what to do in specific situations in life. If your neighbor slaps you on the cheek, here's a specific thing that you do to respond to that. If a soldier comes up to you and tells you to walk a mile with him, here's how you respond to that in a specific way. So in the same breath, while talking about the dangers of legalism, taking the specifics as the entire picture, he then also gives specifics. So there's a balance that we have to strike there. And I think if we were to have a motto in discipleship, it might be something like this, precision without legalism. There's a struggle there. There's a struggle to balance those two, but that's the the struggle that we have to engage in. Um, Some of you that know me uh, well know that I'm a little bit bit obsessed with the Anabaptist movement. Let me say that clearly, not the anti-Baptist movement. Our calm group will get a kick out of that. Uh, misunderstanding for a few weeks over, over that one, and about A N A Baptist. It's a theological movement stems out of the Radical Reformation. It's a it's a tag that was placed on a group of Christians who started a, a practicing adult immersion. When when infant baptism was the the rule of the day, these people that were going to do a, adult baptism got tagged as being those who baptize again. But Anabaptist, all right? So I'm a little bit obsessed with this movement that ultimately uh, has expressed itself today in different religious groups that we know as the Amish, the Mennonites. There are several other denominations out there, but those are the two that are probably most well-known Anabaptist groups, all right? So I like to look at them and think, think through things uh, through their lens and everything. Um, the thing, one of the things I love about the Anabaptists is that they have just this extreme passion for Jesus, um, more so than anything I grew up, grew up with in the sense that everything they look at through life, it's through the lens not of Scripture, they look at Scripture, but the lens they look at everything through is Jesus, Jesus, period. And all the Scriptures are ancillary to that. I think it's an interesting way to look at things. I can get in, get more into that with you individually if you want to know what I, what I mean by that. But in following Jesus in such, a, in such an extreme particular way, just like any religious group, just like any, any denomination, they also have a penchant for legalism. They have a really good emphasis that can lend itself to a legalistic interpretation of things. So here's an example. Um, Anabaptists at one time, uh, well, I guess they're kind of still known for that look, right? Where they, they have the beard with no mustache. And yes, that's Weird Al in the middle in his Amish phase that he went through. Um, but that's kind of the classic Amish look, right? No no mas- mustache. and if you've ever wondered why i'm about to about to give you the story on that. So at one time, men were becoming very obsessed with um, with their appearance and they weren't focusing on the heart issues and all that. The specific um, problem that they were f- dealing with was that kind of stuff. Um, big bushy mustaches that were that were meticulously um, tended to. um, That was a very popular style in the European military at the time. And you're taking a picture of that for com group discussion, I assume. (laughs) For personal ideas, yeah. Take it to your... yeah, so that was the, kind of the rule. That was a popular style in the European military. Well, the Anabaptists, two of the things, in addition to following Jesus very closely, two of the things that they value greatly is simplicity and, and, and pacifism, okay? So having that look runs against their emphasis on simplicity, right? Because it's a matter of pride and one-upsmanship. Who can have the biggest, most, most whatever you would call that, mustache? Um, and then it also pushes, uh, in their minds, it pushed a little bit against their pacifism because they didn't want to be mistaken for military people who, um, who commit violence against others, right? So here's the, in their effort to follow Jesus, they had these very good ideas that they wanted to live out. And within that contact, context, rebelling against this focus on appearance and, a, and maybe a focus on violence, rebelling against those things by shaving off their mustaches, was actually something that I think is to be a little bit admired. It was kind of a prophetic statement that we are not like the world around us, and we refuse to be like the world around us because we value higher things. Okay, But then what happens is another church does it, and then another does it, and then another does it. And a generation or two later, no one knows why it's being done. The principle is lost, and all they know is that holy men don't have mustaches. Right? And that's kind of what it's developed into in in some of those communities today. So legalism simply becomes this adventure in missing the point. Um, At the same time, we do want to be courageous enough to mentor one another in practical application of the Scriptures. We can't just leave it at principles. So my encouragement to you today is to be in relationships where you dare to talk specifically about life and how a relationship with Jesus impacts that life. I'm talking specifically. If you're not in a relationship like that, find a relationship like that. A good first step in that is calm groups. But even in calm groups, we don't always get as specific and meticulous as we might need to. Find a mentor. Find, a, find somebody that can apprentice you in the ways of Jesus. All right? And this is hard work. But the reason we're willing to do this hard work is very simple because we believe Jesus is Lord. It's really that simple. We're willing to do the hard work of making specific application of of the teachings of Jesus because we believe he's Lord. And to say that Jesus is Lord is to challenge the dominant values of the idols in each culture. When we make that declaration, Jesus is Lord, we're making a lot of other declarations that are inherent in that. When I say Jesus is Lord, I don't say it in a vacuum because every culture... In any place, at any time, every culture already has its own lords. And to say Jesus is Lord is going to unsettle some aspect of culture. This culture that we live in and any culture at any time. We believe that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as ones who have entered into a new kingdom, that we are very much a part of a different kingdom than the one that surrounds us. And that kingdom has a different culture than the one that surrounds us. So as disciples of Jesus, as apprentices of Jesus, the question we're asking is what are the values of our culture? What are the idols of our culture, the the lords, if you will, of our culture um, that we need to unsettle by the declaration and by living out the declaration that Jesus is Lord? Okay, so what does it mean to say Jesus is Lord? In the Roman culture... When they said Jesus is Lord, that was unsettling. And when they lived that out, especially, that was unsettling to the idea that Caesar is Lord. In Hebrew circles, the, the declaration that Jesus is Lord was unsettling to the idea that Torah is Lord. The law is Lord. So what does it mean today to say Jesus is Lord? You, you can't just take the dominant values of the society that surrounds us and sprinkle a little Jesus seasoning on top and claim that you're... Following Jesus. You can't say, I'll add Jesus to the list. I'll even make Jesus number one on my list of values. Because the point is, when we follow Jesus, when we're his disciples, he changes the list itself. Everything is different in that case. So let's talk specifics. If Jesus is Lord, then these are not Lord. Success. You never noticed how many, how many entertainers and artists out there spell their names, replacing the S's with the dollar sign? Um, it's a subculture within entertainment. But the reason it's a subculture within entertainment is because the people that the entertainers are seeking to entertain value those same things. There's a back and forth in that relationship. It's a part of our culture. They're just saying blatantly what's true of many of us, that money and material success and status is is a Lord. And when we say Jesus is Lord, we're going to upset that dynamic. Oops, let's see, I don't click down to the next one. Fame and popularity, uh, and that includes online, social media. Uh, it's amazing when you start reading through the, uh, so, some of the articles and studies that are out there that I've come across about how much people base their self-worth On their social media status and we like to think of that as being a teenage thing but it's even it even bleeds into us how many likes do your pictures of your kids get how many friends are following your your updates about your life and your meal that you last had and all of that we laugh about it but people people place a lot of value in that stuff it's become an idol in a lot of ways individualism don't tell me what to do I'm doing it the way I want to do it you stay out right I'm, I'm my own person. I have my own individual rights that I'm going to stand up for. Individualism is all about how special and distinct from the collective I am. Right? So when we call people into community um, to serve the needs of one another and to put our own individual needs second to the group and the well-being of the, of the community, then we're actually pushing back against individualism. Privacy. My business and your business. Stay out. Mind your own, right? But disciples say, I want my business to become your business and vice versa. I want to open up my private life and, and ask you to help me with it. And we're going we're to live like family. We're not going to live like distant friends. Following Jesus pushes against all of these things that are idols, that are values in our culture. Sexual license seems to be the one area where no one gets to tell anyone anything else about what may be healthy or unhealthy. Our rights, that's kind of the individualism, but th- thinking in terms of our rights as opposed to our blessings and our privileges, is, it runs against the way that Jesus taught us to look at the world. Valuing and, and making an idol of youth instead of wisdom and age and, and, and experience. Beauty, external beauty, materialism, the fashion, footwear, technology that you, that you have as a part of your life, as, a, as, a, as a, a determinant of the value that you carry. And consumerism. We grow up in a consumer culture. That's probably one of the biggest values of all in our culture right now. We're always asking, what's the minimum I can invest to get the maximum return? Um, how can I get the most product for the least amount of pay? Right? That's, that's kind of what, what this culture is all about. But that's the opposite of how church life works. That's the opposite of how family life works when we're following Jesus. So the point of all this is we come into Christianity, whether we were raised in the church, raised in a Christian home or not, we're still surrounded by, we're swimming in these waters, right? So we come into our faith pre-discipled by our culture in the ways that are opposed to what Jesus calls us to. And so we're going to have to be willing to start saying no to things that hurt a little bit to say no to. We're gonna to have to start saying no to values that we may subconsciously be holding on to, because that's the air that we've been breathing for so long. So, with this in mind, let's uh, let's take a look at how Jesus reverses this a little bit. If you have a Bible or a Bible app or whatever, look at John chapter thirteen. Actually, I'm gonna put it up here, so whatever. Um, John chapter thirteen. And John chapter thirteen is the Last Supper, um, and Jesus and his his disciples are all there. That includes Peter, and that includes Judas. One of them would betray Him, one of them would deny Him. But Jesus loves His friends and enemies without distinction, and so He invites them all there and He serves them all. And verse 5 says that as, as Jesus poured water into, into a basin, He then started, he started washing their feet, washing His disciples' feet. Now, one interesting thing that I discovered as I was, as I was getting ready for this is that some recent scholars... Um, kind of push back against the idea that this is something that only a servant would do, washing people's feet. That's the way I was always taught this growing up, is that Jesus, Jesus took on the role that only a servant would do in washing other people's feet. And so he was put, putting himself in the position of a servant. But one thing some scholars are, are saying is that we can't say that for sure. What we can say for sure is that a servant would at least have brought a basin to the guests so that they could wash their own feet. So at best, Jesus is taking the form of a servant, but it's even possible that he's, taking, he's putting himself below that of a servant in doing something that even they weren't asked to do regularly. But Jesus is using this action, washing his disciples' feet, as symbolic, as a way to teach a deep truth about what it means to be disciples, about discipleship. So he's going around the table washing their feet. And it says, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, now, this is starting in verse 6, He said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. So this is symbolic, and the the meaning of this symbol will be revealed to you later. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that's why he said that not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Here's discipleship. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. All right, so it's, just not, it's not enough just to know certain things. I'm sure there was a sense in which these disciples understood that following Jesus meant that we were to serve other people. Right? I don't think that was a secret to them necessarily. In the West, a lot of times we equate education with discipleship. So I come to church, I learn stuff, that's discipleship. Even a lot of churches, when they talk about their discipleship ministries, it's all about we have these Sunday school classes, we teach these sermon series, we do all this teaching stuff. And that's, learning is an important part of following Jesus. I'm not, I'm not denying that. I'm saying if it's just education and it's not activated in our lives, then it's not discipleship. Discipleship goes beyond that. If you aren't challenged to implement what you're learning, you're a hypocrite because you know a lot of stuff that you don't do. And I think we're all guilty of being hypocrites from time to time, but it shouldn't be what we expect of ourselves. Knowing stuff isn't the, isn't, isn't the, the way. It's not the route that we take to following Jesus. But knowing stuff so that you can immediately turn around and implement it. That's the path. That's what we're seeking. So we see this beautiful bi-directional Um, spirituality of Jesus enacted in a symbol. It's bi-directional because He's washing their feet. There's this relationship between those people and their God right there in a tangible way. But it's horizontal in the sense that He is serving those around Him and setting an example of that being what the norm should be. That's what discipleship is. It's a salvation relationship with God that results in Jesus being our example in life, in the way we behave, in the things that we do, okay? And you can even see those two directions in the shape of the cross, right? Vertical and horizontal. They come together at the center of our faith. Discipleship moves us closer to Jesus um, for a purpose. Discipleship moves us close. It helps us to be more like Jesus, not just because he's the celebrity that we've chosen to follow, but it brings us closer to Jesus so that we can move closer to others in the ways that matter. Okay, So, foot washing. You know, there's even been discussion about foot washing. Are, are Christians mandated to wash feet? What should we do with this passage? Is it something that we're mandated to follow? Because he says, if you, you have to follow me. You have to follow my example. Um, what, 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 is foot washing a, a specific that we should be doing today? You know, now we wear socks and shoes. We don't walk around on dusty roads all day where foot washing has the same practical import that it did back then. But the principle is transferable. Find practical ways to serve people today. No matter how demeaning it may feel to you, find ways to serve and bless other people. Now, having said that, symbols... And Jesus said, this is a symbol. You're going to understand what this means later. He said, I'm doing this as a symbolic act. And a lot of times, uh, symbols aren't the end destination, but they remind us of certain things. And so it could, washing somebody's feet could still be a a meaningful practice for us. uh, Elisa and I went to a marriage retreat one time where they they had husbands and wives wash, wash one another's feet and if done with the right spirit and with the right heart, it can be a very meaningful thing to do, to wash one another's feet, because, not because we legalistically think we have to, because we know what the principle is. We know what the transcendent principle is. It's to uh, serve people in practical ways. But foot washing uh, ceremonies like that can serve as reminders of the posture that we're to assume towards other people. It's physically making yourself physically get into a posture of service so that as we leave, we can assume that posture in our spirits. So that's what discipleship is. Let's pray real quick. Lord, help us to be like you. Teach us. Lead us. Place people in our lives that can model for us the faith in ways that we need to see and that we need to understand. We want to be your apprentices, and and we're we're surrounded by so many things that get in the way of that. So many things that are opposed to your ways and opposed to your purposes. And we, uh, even though we claim to follow you, so many times we make those things idols. We we keep our eyes on the things that our culture teaches us to keep an eye our eyes on, rather than rather than on you. And God, we pray that you will. Um, you will sharpen us in those ways. You will, you will help us to keep our eyes on You, and to know You better, and to follow You more more completely, more perfectly. In Jesus' name, amen. A few, uh, a few things. I know we, we usually give discussion questions and stuff. I know a lot of comm groups aren't, aren't meeting as regularly as, as we did because it's the summer time. So I'm going to change that a little bit today, just give you some homework. Um, First thing, sign up to serve on Sundays in some way or other. Um, well, I think we need to think of Sundays a little bit differently than maybe we do. Um, church, the time that we spend together on Sundays is, it's a time when we get to kind of workshop the, the behaviors and the values that we then want to take out into the world. Because we before we practice them out there, before we practice them in a, in a culture that's that has other things that they worship, has other idols that that guide them, before we do that, we first get to exercise those muscles in an environment that's friendly, in an environment that has other people that are also trying to be molded in the same ways. So when you think about church, do you think the singing was pretty good today? It was a good good church service. Or I really liked the message. Or I kind of fell asleep in that one. Or whatever. My seat was really comfortable today. Or... Do you think, how can I serve? I served really well today. I exercised those muscles well, and I think I'm ready to go out and do it in less friendly territory now. Um, are you already a disciple of consumerism in the way you view this time that we're spending right now? Or you're just a consumer of religious goods and services more than you are a worshiper and a servant? Or do you come here thinking, here's a great opportunity to serve the needs of others, to get the exercise I need so that I can go out and use those muscles in the world? There's a lot of ways to serve here. We have people that have to come in early every time and set up. We have people that have to stay late every time and, and take down because we don't own this building, so we can't just leave it the way the way it happens to be. We need to, to care for it. We have people that... That set up coffee. We have people that greet greet newcomers when they come in. We have people that teach the kids. We have people that work with youth. We have people that read scripture and pray. There's lots of ways that you can start to exercise those muscles. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that discipleship happens on Sundays only, that if you're serving on Sundays, that you're doing discipleship. I'm saying that's the first step. Start exercising those muscles here where you're surrounded in friendly company so that you, you establish a mindset of service. You establish a, a norm of service in your life that you can then take out to use in other places. So sign up to serve on Sundays as a way to get started. And then notice how, that's, how service feels, how serving feels, and aim for that in your other relationships. Because as you're serving... It's going to feel different to be a a giver rather than a receiver. It feels different to take that posture. And And then you realize that this should be your normal feeling in all of your relationships to be a servant of man, mankind. All right, and then seriously, in real life, I put both of those because it's really important. Consider practicing radical generosity, talk about this with someone. You know, our finances and our possessions are another one of those areas that we tend not to talk to other people about. Um, so a challenge is to invite someone into your life and discuss how discipleship affects your wallet. Now, that might be another disciple of Christ, and you want to talk to them and, and workshop ideas together so that you can come up with ways to be more radically generous together in service of Christ. Or you could invite somebody that's not a disciple of Jesus into a discussion about finances and possessions and all of these things and you just make sure that as you're talking about it you accurately reflect the impact that Jesus has on those things for you and it can end up being a first step towards you mentoring someone else in the ways of Jesus so that's the challenge talk about what radical generosity means with someone anyone your choice think if we do those things and think through them then maybe we'll be uh, we'll be on the right track